Second Samuel chapter 14. All right, we'll read the whole chapter, so bear with me. Beginning at verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 14. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means, so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest, for my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. And the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. 
But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he is barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Let's begin with prayer. Dear Lord, Father God, we want to know you. And so we ask that you would teach us today from your word. Show us, Father, the only way, the true way of restoration. In the light of this false restoration we see here in this text. May our hearts be open to hear and to listen and may we, Lord, be uh, spurred up to love our Savior more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things I find myself involved in as a young parent is a lot of phony repentance sessions. Maybe you know what I'm talking about, or you've watched one of these things happen from afar. Uh, you tell the child to say sorry to their sibling for something, and the child sort of mumbles without looking up from the toy they just stole. Sorry. And that's not going to do, right? So you, you go over to the child, you get up, you go over to the child, and you want, take two, all right, put down the toy, right? Now walk over to your sister, look them in the eye. No, look them in the eyes. All right, now 
tell them you're sorry and really mean it, okay? And I want you to really mean this, right? And so maybe they do a little better, but you're still not quite convinced. This is, this is not quite a legit repentance. And so you, you want a little more out of them. Bobby, you know, say some, say some more things. Uh, maybe talk about how you felt when, when you did what you did. And, and, and you know what? Tell them that you're not going to do it again. Yeah, tell them you're not going to do it again, right? So they, you, you make them do the extended version of the apology, and then you coach them through the hug or the handshake. But you still feel like the whole thing was a bit of a phony restoration. And that right there is the key to this whole Bible text. Phony baloney. That's what describes everything that happens. The whole thing is an act from the very beginning with this wise woman putting on her uh, widow's costume to the end with this phony kiss that David gives Absalom to seal their phony restoration. Phony baloney. Now, what this means is that what you see about God's kingdom in this text, you need to see by way of contrast. We'll put this text in the mirror and flip it around, and everything there we'll see is what true restoration looks like. It does exist, true restoration, despite what we see in this text. It is available to you. And it's something for you to rest in and to rejoice over this morning. So first, we've got a phony confrontation. That's my first point this morning. A phony confrontation, which we see in verses 1 to 20. This is the largest section in the text. And David's general, Joab, the guy that this text starts out with, he's the kind of guy who always thinks he knows what should happen and is always ready to be the one to make it happen. So he decides one day, well, like, we got this relationship between David and his son, and I'm going to fix it. I'm going to set things back up. Uh, verse 1 tells us that Joab knew the king's heart went out to Absalom. He knows that David cared about his son. Now it's been three years since Absalom killed his brother Amnon and fled. But David cares about his son. He's stuck. And so Joab thinks, well, I'm, gonna, I'm happy to try to fix things for David. And so he comes up with this scheme to confront David and to get him to bring Absalom home. Now, notice, if you've been following along in David's story, that this scheme looks suspiciously like Nathan's confrontation of David back in chapter 12. You remember how God sends his prophet Nathan, to confront David with his sin. Nathan even tells a story that David believes is real, just like Joab instructs this wise woman to do. They are clearly meant to be parallel accounts. And so the differences between them pop out at us. Uh, let me mention a few of them. First, Joab sends this woman from Tekoa. But Nathan was sent by the Lord. Uh, further, she speaks 
Joab's words, right? Verse 3 says, so Joab put the words in her mouth, almost the way the Bible sometimes describes the way that, that God puts his, mouths in, his words in the mouths of his prophets. And sure enough, Nathan says, thus says the Lord. He is a prophet. He's skilled in communicating God's words to God's people. But the wise woman says, thus says Joab, she is skilled in communicating anybody's words. They don't have to be true. They don't have to make sense. She can work with them. That's her job. That's what she's skilled at. I am convinced that God wants us to notice the contrast between these two confrontations and learn from them. This wise woman, she uses acting, deception, half-truths, sentimentality, flattery to convince David of her point. We'll look at a few of these things more closely. She's a master manipulator. In fact, this word wise that describes her is a major hint to the reader. It should tip us off a little bit because in context, last chapter, we met this guy named Jonadab who was described as crafty. Exact same word. And you might also recall at this point that the serpent in Genesis who tempted Adam and Eve was also described as being crafty. That is not the model we are to follow when we confront sin. On the other hand, opposed to this woman, Nathan, he's clear and he's direct. He still pays attention to the art of persuasion, right? He uses this story to help uh, David uh, see things clearly, uh, but notice that as soon as he finished his story, he immediately clarifies it's a parable of David's own life. He's not trying to trick David or deceive him. He wants him to see clearly. True confrontation is not manipulation. It seeks to clearly show someone how they have despised God's word. One of the ways this text shows us that everything is phony is its use of irony. Irony is a very important literary device. You can find it all over this story. I won't even be able to point out to you all the places. You could have fun finding them all later on. A basic definition of irony would be when something is said or done or happens that is the opposite of reality. So, for instance, in verse 17, the woman tells David, he is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. Now, we know full well that David has been horrendous at discerning good and evil over the past couple chapters. Her flattery is the opposite of the reality that we know. It's phony. It's also a bit terrifying, actually, because we might remember that back in the Garden of Eden, again, there's a reference here to Satan. Satan told Adam and Eve, if they ate of the tree, they would be like God, knowing good and evil. This wise woman uses the same technique with David. And then again in verse 20, she continues to try to butter David up a bit. My Lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. 
We know that in the last chapter, David was manipulated out the wazoo by uh, Amnon, by Absalom to send these various people to their doom. First, first Tamar and then Amnon. And generally, he, he had no idea what his children were going to be doing to each other. He doesn't know all things at all. And in this very scene, as she tells David he knows everything, she, of course, is seeking to pull the wool over his eyes herself and get him to do what Joab wants him to do. So, flattery. That's one part of this phony confrontation. Another piece of her phony confrontation is half-truth. You see, the center of this speech that she gives is her comparison between what her son has done and what David's son has done. She makes that comparison in sort of a roundabout way because she doesn't want to get herself in trouble. She's trying to be careful, but that's what she's doing. Her son killed another son. David's son Absalom killed his other son Amnon. Thus far, right, that's true. You can compare those two situations, but it's only half a truth because the situations aren't fully comparable. She says her son was killed accidentally, right? Her son killed the other accidentally, but Absalom's murder of Amnon was very premeditated, like two years premeditated, And this is important because just like U.S. laws today, in Israelite law, there was a difference between how uh, accidental murder and how premeditated murder was treated. And so the woman's claim then in verse 13 that David convicts himself when he offers her son mercy, but he doesn't offer mercy to his own son, that's just wrong. Now, she's right that he should feel convicted. Right? That's where we see more irony in this text. He should be convicted, but he should be convicted that these situations are different, and so he does need to bring back his banished one, but in order to do justice. And this brings us to the final piece of this phony confrontation that I want to point out. This wise woman is arguing that God's mercy is more important than his justice. This is a little bit subtle, so let me point it out to you. In verse 14, she says, God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. It's kind of a cryptic statement, but the sum of what she's saying is that God is merciful. In specific contexts, he provides ways for life to be preserved. In this case, what she's referring to, she's referring to something specific. She's referring to the fact that in Israel, if you killed someone accidentally, if it happened by accident, you could run to this city of refuge. There were a bunch of cities throughout the land. And you could go to one of those cities, and you could be safe. And there was even a process through which you could, over time, uh, be returned from from exile in that city to your home and to your family. So what she is saying is true. The problem with her statement is her implied application of it to David. 
She's telling him, because God is merciful in this one specific situation, he's provided a way, a just way, for mercy to happen, you need to be merciful in every situation. But David's situation is not a case of accidental murder. So what she's really saying is that David should ignore the demands of justice for the sake of mercy. She's twisting things around by elevating one of God's character traits above the others. You will find this tendency often in Christian traditions that do not stick close to God's word. Right? Statements like, well, God is loving. Surely he will not send anyone to hell. Or God is merciful. We don't need to do that awkward confronting of sin thing. Or maybe you've run into the opposite tendency. God is just and holy and you need to be crushed until you understand that you are a worm and then we'll crush you some more. And don't you dare smile, skip, or laugh in church, young man. These approaches emphasize one truth about God at the expense of another. True confrontation does not ignore God's mercy or God's justice, but it applies them appropriately within each context. So this discussion moves us into our second point and and the second stage in our story, verses 21 to 24. So my second point, a phony punishment, a phony punishment. And right from the beginning, we see more irony here. David brings back Absalom, just like everybody wanted him to. But it doesn't lead to restoration. Instead, it leads to actual banishment. Right? So before, technically, David hadn't banished Absalom to Gesher, even though the wise men said that he did. Absalom fled on his own. But now David actually does banish Absalom from his presence. It's the best he can do to sort of punish Absalom, but it's really just a phony punishment because, first of all, the crime hasn't been confronted. Right? This is like sending your child to their room without any intention of telling them why you did that. That's not punishment. That's just retribution. And secondly, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Absalom murdered his brother. The law demands more than just being banished to your room. You see, David is stuck. He's stuck. That's where you end up when you fail to do things the right way from the beginning. He's not willing to pursue true justice, but neither is he willing to forgive. And so the best he can say is, don't come to see me. That's the situation that people get themselves into when they've not pursued restoration with one another. Unresolved sin always leads to relational alienation. In small ways or large ways, when sin is significant, you become emotionally alienated, saying, I don't want to know you anymore. And typically after that, you become physically alienated, saying, I don't want to be around you anymore.
But let me just say a few things about punishments in the Bible here, because this topic can be a bit confusing. First, we need to distinguish between earthly punishments and eternal punishment. So let's take David as an example. After David repents of his sin, back in chapter 12, Nathan tells him he is forgiven. Maybe you remember that. Uh, Now, Nathan is speaking of eternal punishment here, right? And it's not that David's eternal punishment just disappears, it's just gone, because remember, God is merciful and just. The punishment has to happen. Rather, David has been promised through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that God will provide for his sin. God will provide a lamb to take his eternal punishment. And we learn in the New Testament that Jesus is that lamb. He takes the eternal punishment that David deserved for his adultery, for his murder upon himself. And so David is forgiven. But David also faced earthly punishment. According to Old Testament law, he should have been executed twice over. For some reason, God takes the life of his child instead. We don't know exactly why God does that. We do know. It looks a whole lot like the gospel. The son of David dies in David's place. That's a picture of what Jesus, David's greater son, will do for him. So that's the first thing. There's a difference between earthly punishments and eternal punishments. And the second thing we should say about punishments is that only someone with authority over an individual to punish may punish them. So David has authority over Absalom as his father and as his king. Um, and, you know, parents have authority to punish children. Bosses have authority to punish their workers. Uh, governments have authority to punish their citizens, etc. Within all of those circles, what these punishments look like, right, that's determined by the Bible, what culture says, what laws say, what a job contract says, what parents decide between themselves about what the household is going to look like. All these different things. We don't need to talk about all that. But here's the deal. If you don't have authority to punish someone, then don't try to punish them. If you do, it becomes revenge, which we saw last week. The Bible is clear. We may not do. So you may not punish your friend or your spouse when they sin against you. You may confront their sin and call them to repent of it, but you may not punish them. That's not your job. The reason I think this is important to see is that it helps us see restoration does not always include earthly punishment, right? It, it, it depends on what the sin was and uh, what the relationship is. However, Full relation, full restoration always includes eternal punishment. 
this is important to see. What this means is that for full restoration to occur, Jesus must always be involved. You can be restored with someone in an earthly way, right? But, but unless Jesus in, is involved, it is not full restoration. Because every sin earns a wage of eternal punishment, and only Jesus can pay that wage for you. Seeing this shows us the centrality of Jesus to all restoration, right? Whether we're talking about my introduction, the child and his sibling, Jesus is central to full restoration in that situation. Or we're talking about a murderer on death row. Jesus is central to full restoration in that situation too. Well, Absalom will eventually face both earthly and eternal punishment. But in this text, he does not. He faces a phony punishment which will not bring any kind of restoration, earthly or eternal. But he will not be content to stay exiled from David forever. So let's look at the last section, verses 25 to 33. We'll call this a phony repentance. A phony repentance. This section also begins with a heavy dose of irony. The narrator takes a little bit of time to describe Absalom to us. He is a beautiful man. No blemish on him from his soul to the top of his head. Now, the irony is that everyone knows he is spattered all over with the dark stains of his brother's blood. We're told that he's got beautiful, thick, long hair. We won't learn why that's ironic until chapter 18, so remember this, but no peeking. Don't go ahead. We're told he's got three sons. He's got a beautiful daughter named Tamar. Looks like a perfect family, but again, ironic, because the name of his daughter reminds us that there is brokenness in this family. So on the outside, at least, Absalom and his family, they look pretty good. What does this guy need to repent of? He's perfect, no blemishes. But then again, right, Saul, the previous king of Israel, looked pretty good too. Everybody liked how he looked in the beginning. And David's older brother, Eliab, looked pretty good. When Samuel came to anoint the new king, he thought to himself, I think it's got to be this Eliab guy, but... God told him, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks in the outward appearance, but the Lord looks in the heart. And so the narrator of this text gives us a little bit of a closer look at Absalom's heart. If we want to know if repentance is real or phony, we need to see the overflow of the heart. And Absalom's heart is not repentant. He shows us that with both his actions and his words. First, when Joab went, won't answer his call, he burns down Joab's field. And what we get here is a bit of a preview for what happens when someone fails to repent. Their sin turns into a raging fire that begins to destroy others. And sure enough, Absalom is going to be a destroyer. His actions, burning down the field of someone who won't God, talk to him. Those are the actions of someone who's never been confronted for their sin. 
I remember a kid like this on my block growing up. He was the youngest child in a broken family. He was never confronted over his sin, ever. He got more and more out of control. And one day, as he got older, he seriously injured his own grandmother. They moved away. I don't know what happened to him. But the lesson is clear. People do not become repentant on their own. You can't lock them in their room and just hope that eventually they start to feel sorry for what they did. They need to be confronted. In some cases, they need to be punished so that the hard consequences of their actions are clear to them, are obvious. Absalom is living in a phony world where all his actions work out. He has no reason to be repentant at all. And he makes that clear with his words as well in verse 32. If there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. (laughs) Those words are practically a dare. He's not sorry at all. He'd do it again in a heartbeat. He knows his old dad is not going to confront him. So he sends Joab off to David. And again, notice the irony here, right? Joab is being sent to try to do something that he himself had sent someone to try to do two years before. The writing's on the wall. He failed last time. He's going to fail this time too. And sure enough, when Absalom finally sees David, notice how skeletal the account suddenly becomes, the description. There's no words recorded. It's been five years since David last saw his son. What happens? Absalom dutifully bows. David gives Absalom an obligatory kiss. The kiss symbolizes restoration, but it's a phony kiss. David is not confronted or punished, and Absalom is not repentant. What a story full of phony baloney, right? Everything is wrong in this text. It's all an act. And that's what we see in this world. So much is wrong. People are in rebellion against the king, which has led to their exile. They're not allowed into the presence of the king. And now they live fake lives, ignoring the reality of their own createdness, and trying to work through their broken sinfulness on their own. They need to be restored. But all the scheming in the world on their part will not bring restoration. Joab fails to bring restoration with his phony confrontation. David fails to bring restoration with his phony punishment. And Absalom fails to bring restoration with his phony repentance. But you do not need to live in this phony world. True restoration exists. And God's way of restoration is the only way. It begins when we are confronted with God's words. Not Joab's words, not 
Agilon's words, not your spouse's words, not your mom or dad's words. God's words must always be the loudest voice in your life. The perfect and holy words of God show us who he is and what he calls us to be. Allow yourself to be confronted. God is both fully just so that you need to be confronted and he is fully merciful so that you don't need to be frightened of being confronted. And what about true punishment? Not so easy to embrace, is it? But just as important in all its earthly forms to teach, to warn to protect, to make restitution. And eternal punishment, that is even more important because the existence of eternal punishment teaches us to love and trust our Savior. Over and over again as we acknowledge our sin, we are forced to also recognize our need for Jesus. We are daily filled with thankfulness as we see the cross where our punishment was fully poured out. For without Jesus, we are on the hook to pay for all our sins. But in him, we have forgiveness, just like David. Even those who must face significant earthly punishment have that path open to them. They can be freed from the prison of the soul. For through Christ, full restoration is always available. Therefore, therefore, do not harden your hearts, but repent. Open yourself to confrontation. Allow yourself to be punished so that you might be led to repentance. Repent like Absalom was unwilling to and you will be welcomed into the presence of the king to lovingly bow at his feet and to receive the kiss of full restoration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have provided a way for us to be fully restored to you. We see in this phony restoration, Lord, what is not true and what the world seeks after. All these different schemes and ways of being restored, of fixing the problem that do not fix the problem. So we ask, Lord, that you would show us your truth that your words might be the ones that we hear and that we might be confronted by them knowing, Lord, that you are both just and merciful. You demand an accounting and you provide for that accounting. And that provision is in Jesus. And so we thank you that we know him. And we ask, Lord, that we would worship him today and we would rest in this way of true restoration through which we can know you. Praise in Jesus' name.